It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a beautiful day. It's Tuesday. It suddenly struck me we're right in the middle of May already, right? Uh, It's going to be June soon. I know that some of you know that that is the case, that May is always followed by June. But it seems to me that, uh, you know, it should be a bit hotter. Should we not be uh, enjoying ourselves a little bit more, heading towards the summer, sitting out in beer gardens, you know, hanging about? You might not want to, though, at the moment, because you might be assailed by what can only be described as giant woke rats. That's right. Remember that? I told you. They were around at Christmas. They were eating into your Christmas presents. Today, they're not eating into your Christmas presents. Today, they're eating into your house and your home. You're going to open up your cereal box one morning, and there's going to be one in there. They're very partial, I'm told, to um, what can only be described as cereal. Cornflakes, shredded wheat, um, any sort of muesli with a bit of sugar in it. They love all that. You've got to be very careful of these rats because they were created by the world of woke. I'll be explaining that later on in the show. Meanwhile, uh, Suella Braverman has been uh, interfering with the world of woke. She's been speaking and saying white people should not feel guilty. She's the Home Secretary that all the lefties love to hate because, you know, she's from an ethnic minority, but she hates racism. What? No, they keep accusing her of it. Apparently, she says this, you know, that white people should not exist in a special state of sin. We're going to talk to Frank Ferrady this morning, professor, sociologist, of course, as well. We'll ask him, what is going on out there? Why do we have to keep defining what Britishness is? Why are we being assailed from all sides by people who say, oh, there's something wrong with you if you're white? Why are we allowing people to go on ITV shows when they cover the coronation and say uh, that the balcony full of royal members of the royal family is terribly white? What is wrong with them? We'll be talking about food as well this morning because that's another reason that woke rats are coming for you. There's too much food in this country and there's too much we're being thrown away. But all we hear from the left is that it's too expensive, we can't afford it. Well, you take a look around, I don't see anybody starving. Do you? When was the last time you saw somebody starving in this country? Everybody seems to be overweight. And I blame, I I conclude myself in that, you know. But I'm not the one shouting about it. Also, we will be talking to Alex Salmon. There's more developments up in Scotland, north of the border. The SNP, apparently, are in more trouble. It's been discovered that the police actually asked to go and search the home of Nicola Sturgeon um, and her husband, Peter Murrell. Uh, But it was two weeks before they got the warrant to do so. 
Nobody's quite sure why there was such a delay. Also, of course, Laura Dodsworth is here. She'll be talking to us a great many things. Of course, not least, I'm sure, about the gender posmographication that's going on at the moment. UK unemployment rates rise to 3.9%. That seems quite high. And also, uh, we're going to be asking the question, of course, what is going on with our immigration policy? Rishi Sunak is going to go to Iceland and he's going to tell the Council of Europe that the world is failing to control mass immigration. I think he's got a point. So we'll talk about that as well. But we want to hear from all of you, of course, too. And the latest from ITV's This Morning debacle. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Let us go straight away to Professor Frank Ferreira, author and sociologist, of course, a man uh, who knows about many things, speaks an awful lot of common sense. We've got much to talk about. Also, including in this is the rise uh, in ketamine use, which is a drug which was normally given to horses as a tranquilizer, but it's being used more and more and more uh, at universities. But that's another story. Uh, Frank, very good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Good to see you. Why is it, do you think, that we have become this nation of... Um, naval gazers constantly asking questions about Britishness and what it is and what it means and why we need to be guilty if we're white. When did this all happen? Well, I think it kind of began to kick in about 25 years ago when the schools began to uh, tell young people that British society has got a lot to answer for. Mm. And when patriotism became this dirty word where teachers were reluctant to fly the flag in case they appeared to be nationalistic. Yeah. It's very, very interesting because every kind of identity uh, was celebrated in British society. If you were gay or if you were disabled or if you're from an ethnic minority, every uh, single identity is is kind of declared to be brilliant, Mm. except for British identity. That's like one identity that's been pathologized in schools and universities. So when you have somebody who's gone through the schools, maybe the university, uh, they basically have become detached from their Britishness. They become embarrassed about it. They learn to be a teeny bit ashamed of it. And as a result, we're continually asking the question, who are we, what we're about? You know, why, why is it that we don't have a, a strong, robust kind of sense of, of who we are? And it's created this uh, culture where it's now come to the point where the, the word white carries negative connotations. So... If you listen to the BBC, for example, the Today programme, they mentioned the word dead white male and everybody sneered. Yeah. That's a bit of a joke. If you're a white man and you're dead, then that, that deserves uh, kind of a sign of contempt. Exactly. Well, to be honest, because of all that sort of sneering, I've given up with Radio 4 because that's all they seem to do is sneer. You know, it's all they know how to do. They're sort of ashamed of, of each other almost and they have to prove to each other how woke they are by saying something stupid like that, right? Absolutely. And, and the last thing I'd like to do is to go to a dinner party where they hang out, because you can imagine the kind of discussions that take place where they kind of, uh, first of all, begin to examine the food on the table, Yes. whether it's, whether it's uh, woke enough to be consumed. Mm. Then they, they kind of check each other out whether anybody's wearing any leather, because yeah. that's not really very good. Too much cosmetics, that's not cool. Right. And their kind of uh, mindset is so obsessed with lifestyle and identity. Yeah that they stop being human. Yes, and they also have to ride by bike, don't they, as well? 
they have to ride by bike. But very often when you watch their bicycle <laughs> manners, they're not exactly very athletic about it. No, know? they're absolutely not. Well, let's not go into cyclists. But but it's the same reason, for example, that all of these people uh, on social media with flags of all manner of uh, hues and, uh, and sways, like, you know, they've got the Irish flag, they've got the EU flag, they've got the Italian flag, they've got some other flag because they're so pan-European. But the flag they one, the one flag they hate and they don't have is the Union flag. It is, and, and you know, you, you go to their house and there are little symbols of the rainbow flag everywhere, and the rainbow flag in particular is absolutely a must. Yes. This is the way you demonstrate that you're on the right side of history. But if by any chance you see a St. George's flag, you see a, a Union Jack, that is, in their minds, uh, pretty much a, a sign that you're a fascist or a, or a far-right lunatic mm. because sensible people would have a strong sense of emotion when they see you know, Britishness being displayed, uh, even in, during the coronation. Exactly right. And, you know, it is ridiculous, isn't it? Because now it's all being honed down for an election in a year's time or 15 months' time or whatever uh, the estimates are. Um, and immigration is suddenly now a big issue. And it should have been a big issue for the last five years. But it's only really now that the Tory government has worked out that they've done a terrible job uh, of, of actually protecting our borders. They've done a terrible job uh, of, um, of stopping illegal migrants from coming here. But it also turns out that through the front door, while we've been letting them in the back door, they've been coming in in even bigger numbers, legally. Well, there is no front door. That's the whole point. You know, the door has gone. Right. Uh, so they'll take it off its hinges. Exactly. <laughs> That's gone. So there is, nobody has to go, kind of kick the door in to get in here because there's almost like, a, you know, come in, please. Uh, and there is this kind of uh, fundamental dishonesty yeah. where uh, we're not prepared to discuss, the politicians are not prepared to discuss the fact that we have labor shortages which need to be met by uh, educating and training our local people mm. to be able to do those jobs, which is, a, you know, it takes a bit of time. So instead of dealing with the responsibility of educating and training our own people, instead what people do is, well, let's substitute for them, you know, people from all over the world. Mm. Anybody that moves can come in because that spares us of the responsibility of having a proper skills policy yeah. in this society. But I wanted to ask you, because you're in the university sector and you know a bit about this, you know, one of the main drivers, apparently, of this immigration, legal immigration, uh, is offering visas for students to come here and to bring, you know, dependent members of their family with them. Now, we don't know for sure yet how big the number is going to be, but it could be as high as a million when we come to the end of this month and we get the figure uh, from the Home Office. But basically... You know, universities in this country are getting rich off the back of importation of students, it seems to me. But I wonder how many of those students are actually coming here genuinely to do a course or who are just using that as an easy way to get to Britain and stay here. I think you have a bit of both. Uh, for better or worse, um, British universities are still very attractive internationally. Yeah. Uh, they have become a bit of an industry that's got very little to do with education. And mm. they basically produce these... Uh, Credentials. So people hang around for three, four years, and they get a paper that says, "I've got a BA or a BSc or or, or or an MA degree," and that that's very important for people to get a job. So that that's the main reason why they're coming here. But obviously, at the same time, you know, they are also looking to resettle in British society. Very large numbers of people are regard Britain as a better bet than the place where they come from. Right. And in that way, I think the universe, higher education has become a conduit. Of, of migration that's been unnoticed. I mean, people have actually, if you're at university, you know this is happening. 
but it hasn't really been part and parcel of our public discussion. Yes, and I get the fact that this is a much nicer country than some of the countries these people come from, but I'm, I can't say I'm signed up to this idea that some on the left have, which is that everybody should have the right to come here. Everybody should not have the right to come here. As we've started hearing from some conservative um, policymakers, including Suella Braverman, they should not be coming here at the expense um, and at the detriment of people who are already living here. Well, you know, there's a, a very simple answer to this. You know, if you live in a house and you live with your family, you don't basically allow every single stranger to come into your kitchen and help themselves to a cup of tea. No. You might invite, some, you might invite them and, and you might even welcome them. But at the end of the day, it's the citizens of this society who have the right to determine who comes in and who doesn't. And they have the right to determine when they come in, mm. where, where they're needed, because at the end of the day, our primary responsibility is to our own people. And if we basically give up on that and basically argue that we are responsible for everybody in the world, that's another way of saying that we become totally irresponsible. Mm. But yeah. that's not something that's going to happen. And also on the front uh, of, of immigration, we had uh, some figures. We were talking to Peter Hitchens yesterday. He's seen the figures for the number of people uh, who are rejected for asylum claims in other European countries. And every single other European country rejects a bigger percentage of asylum claims than we do. And yet we're the bad guys, apparently, according to the lefties. It's true. And, and one of the big open secrets really is that our immigration institutions, the people that manage the, who's coming in and who's going out, are extremely uh, uh, weak in terms of having a sense of what needs to be done. We haven't got a proper ethos of, of control. And indeed, many people that work in that sector actually don't believe in immigration control. They think that that's just too much of a burden. They would rather, you know, sort of work at home and, uh, you know, sort of and type away mm. than to actually deal with this problem directly face to face. So we, we are in a very funny situation where everybody says, oh, Britain is the worst, most racist country in the world. You know, it completely doesn't let anybody in. Right. How horrible we are to people coming across the, the channel. But actually, the reality is there is no other country in Europe that is as lax uh, with immigration as, 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 as the British government and the British state is. Mm. Absolutely right. And never a truer word was spoken. Frank, stay with us, if you would. Frank Ferretti uh, speaking to us. He's a professor. He's a sociologist. He knows a thing or two about the way uh, that British society is going. But why is it? I want to ask you this question, and you can call me, of course, with your answer. 0344 499 1000. Why is it that people are so ashamed to be British? This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course. We're talking to Professor Frank Ferradi about a great many things. Frank, Rishi Sunak's off to Iceland today. Uh, he's going to try and convince other European leaders that basically the Rwanda plan should work. But he's also right, I think, when he says that this is a global problem. You know, other countries deal with it better, but all of Europe is under siege, if you like. And I know that people don't like that kind of language being used, but I'm afraid that's how it feels in a lot of parts of Europe. You know, parts of Paris, parts of Brussels, you know, parts of other capital cities. In Italy, for example, you're, uh, you, you'll know better than anybody. You know, they've got a real problem. Yes, I think this is a, a major problem because the whole world at the moment is in motion. Yeah. We live in a situation where uh, not only wars and not only pandemics and, and famines are at work, but also people have woken up to the fact that there are opportunities available for their family if they travel somewhere else. And we now live in a world where a lot of ambitious people, and when I say a lot, I mean millions of ambitious people, 
are looking to make a better life for themselves. And this is not something that uh, I, I complain about or I worry about. I think ambition is a good thing. I can understand why people are looking for a better life. But obviously, the consequences of that is you're going to have a situation where there's going to be market, uh, labor market distortions. There's going to be problems in the capacity of societies like Britain and other European countries to absorb people coming in. But I think at the end of the day, the, the real problem that we have that very, is very rarely discussed is not simply people migrating to Europe, but the fact that European societies have lost the capacity to assimilate newcomers into their, into their ranks. Mm. There used to be a time when people came to Britain and they wanted to learn English as fast as possible. Right. They just wanted to be British as fast as possible. They were proud when their children was, you know, was, was English. And when they went to a football match, they supported England against Poland or England against another team. Right. Today, assimilation has become a, a dirty word. Uh, according to our cultural institutions, assimilation is, is kind of oppressive. And instead of uh, assimilating people to become you know, English or British or Scottish, what we're saying is that multiculturalism has got to trump everything else. And mm. they're quite happy for there, for there to be parallel societies within Britain and other European countries. And that's the real problem yeah. because it means that the large numbers coming in is compounded by the fact that it leads to the, in a sense, the, the corrosion of the, of the bonds that, that kind of tie people together within a society. Because that's the problem, isn't it? Because nowadays you also have, a, say, say, an international cricket match at Headingley, you know, India versus England or Pakistan versus um, England. And you've got a lot of basically homegrown um, ethnic minority uh, supporters of Pakistan who actually are British supporting Pakistan. And you're kind of going, you know, I sort of get it, but why aren't you supporting England? I know, I, I know, but that's not their fault. It's, it's the fault of English society. Yeah. And, and it's a refusal to take seriously the task of turning people that come into these countries, English or Scottish or Welsh people, uh, that is regarded as, as something that is, is not on. It, it's not politically correct to demand that people sign up to a, a common way of looking at things. Yeah. But, so people don't change. You know, they, they, they are what they were, but they now live in a di different geographical landscape. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Let's talk about the wokists for a moment, because um, you were saying that, you know, the universities and the schools are responsible for a lot of this kind of groupthink, which has taken us down this ridiculous rabbit hole. But, I mean, we're now hearing that private schools are actually more woke than state schools. Are you seeing any signs in your kind of travels at university uh, that this is going away a little bit? Because some people think wokery is kind of on the wane. Uh, I think those people are living in cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> I mean, people often tell me, they say, Frank, when is it going to stop? You know, you know, when is it going to come to an end? And not mm. realizing that we really are in the middle of a revolution that's got a very powerful engine to it, and it's going to get far, far worse in the future than it is now. And mm. what I see happening is a situation where uh, this kind of countercultural ideology, this kind of zealousness, yeah. but altering the way we think, that kind of dynamic is, is, is gaining so much power now because there's no institution that I know of that is prepared to stand up against it. Even the police and the army, mm. it used to be like, you know, hardcore, serious, you know, reasonably masculine institutions have now just kind of rolled over and they basically fly the rainbow flag. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, you know, th their big job now is to uh, kind of work according to this woke agenda 
instead of protect the nation or instead of protect, you know, sort of public right. order on our streets. Well, so, I mean, the police are some of the worst uh, offenders of all. Um, and I don't know if you saw this week the, uh, the, the recruitment video for the U.S. Navy being done by a drag queen, you know, who happens to serve on a ship but dresses up and sort of entertains the rest of the sailors uh, on a stage every night. And you're thinking, you know, no wonder Putin's sitting in Russia going, the West has lost the plot. Yeah. I mean, you must think that uh, these guys are on drugs, you know, sort of. I mean, the idea that somehow... You well, they are. Some of them are on puberty blockers, presumably. <laughs> I would imagine you're probably <laughs> right. But can you imagine this a situation where you've got this uh, aircraft carrier, you know, which has got a serious job of patrolling the seas, and people are kind of dining out on drag queens and you know having uh, intense discussion about their transitioning. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine what that means in terms of military preparedness and the capacity to defend the nation? Yes, I mean it is very worrying indeed. And and what about the the levels of education as well? Because we've come out of this period of lockdown and and kind of kids not getting exams and and presumably those kids are now coming into the university systems. Um, presumably, a lot of them don't know very much. Yeah, I think that that's been a problem for a long time, mm. even before the pandemic. And it's not the kids' fault, because kids are kids. And no, it's not the kids' fault, but it's the, it's the fault of the education system, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I think I think what's happened in the education system is we've given up on the idea of adult authority. That somehow you, the teacher, are the center of knowledge. That you, the teacher, uh, are there to challenge people and stretch them, and really kind of stimulate them. So instead of stretching young kids to kind of find their own strength. Uh, what we now have is a situation where we validate children. We want to raise their self-esteem. We kind of talk to them in the language of psychology. And often when I go to a school, when I visit schools, I get the impression that some of the some parts of the school resemble more like a clinic rather than an institute of education because, uh, you know, we, we kind of psychologize all of their problems. We make ready-made excuses for them. And I think under those circumstances, children are not given the opportunity to develop intellectually and to develop their uh, independence and yeah. intellectual independence. Yeah, and it's not encouraged, is it? I mean, they'd rather you actually just went along with what they're telling you uh, than you thought for yourself. Well, conformism is, is powerful. I mean, the ethos of conformism within the school is so powerful that there's only one narrative. I mean, it gets worse in the universities. But already, in, for example, I know of cases where a, a young boy, age seven, tells the teacher... Uh, that uh, you know, as far as he's concerned, he's a boy mm. and he's not going to explore his gender identity. He's not interested mm. in the possibility that he might be anything other than a boy. And the teacher just basically reprimands this young kid and puts him down and, and, and basically uh, criticizes this young boy for his toxic masculinity. Yes. Now, that kind of ethos within the education system, that conformist ethos, that is really, really bad for public life, for democracy, but also for the quality of our education. Yeah, and we're, we're pretty much out of time, but, but Baroness Morgan, the former culture secretary, is proposing a new legally enforced code of practice that would require social media firms to prevent online abuse, misogynistic abuse in particular, against women and girls. Well, there's plenty of abuse on social media, not just misogynistic. Why are they picking on men again? I, know, I think men are, have become this uh, favourite target of everybody in the cultural elite. If, if you're a man unless you wear a skirt or unless you basically acknowledge your toxic masculinity, you're out of the game. So there's this yeah. kind of weird... It's kind of ironic, isn't it? You, can only be misogy- you can't be misogynistic if you pretend to be a woman. You can. I mean, you know, I mean, who knows? These days, we live in a very weird world. You know, 
It may be the case that the next Labour Prime Minister will be a, man, a woman. Yeah. If Keir Starmer changes his mind about about the biology <laughs> issues, that's the only but way I mean, they're going to get a female leader, isn't it? Actually, tell some bloke to be, to pretend to be one. Exactly. That's the way you guarantee it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely right. A Labour woman Prime Minister will have a penis. Brilliant. Um, Frank, thanks very much indeed. Professor Frank Ferrady, author and sociologist. You say that with a joke uh, in your mind, but actually you can see it happening, can't you? Unbelievable. Uh, 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number to call. We've got lots of you wanting to call already. We will get to all of you if we can. We will. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk, of course, about lots of other things. The migration problem. Rishi Sunak, so Bill Wigan MP, is going to join us. He's going to tell us what he makes uh, of the situation currently where supermarkets and farmers are complaining and they want to have a summit with the Prime Minister to sort out the price of food. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Kim says this, as Iceland has no trees which offset CO2, I have to assume they're taking access to our trees. Can we ask them for some money for the carbon reduction offset price? Well, I don't know. Uh, somebody's also saying to me, I've been to Iceland and they do have trees. Well, I haven't seen any trees when I was in Iceland. I flew into Keflavik, I went to Reykjavik, I went to uh, the Blue Lagoon, which I'm sure a lot of you have been to, uh, and I did not see one tree. It's a very volcanic landscape, you see. Uh, apparently they were wiped out by various different uh, ash and lava uh, explosions. Anyway, uh, you may be right. There may be some trees somewhere on Iceland, but the bit of Iceland that I've seen uh, hasn't got any trees at all. But never mind. Uh, Sir Bill Wigan MP is here, Conservative MP for North Herefordshire. He wants to talk about the price of food because apparently uh, the price of food has got so high uh, that supermarkets and farmers are worried about it. Uh, they want to see Rishi Sunak. What's it all about? Sir Bill, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How lovely to be on the greatest radio show on earth. It's <laughs> a joy you. to be with you, you're as always. You're too kind. Now, people say that they can't afford the food. Um, people say that they're uh, spending far too much money. But, but every time I go anywhere near a supermarket, they're always rammed with people. Um, so I'm, I, I agree that prices have gone through the roof, and I blame some of the manufacturers for that. But, but what is it that these guys want? Well, I think the, the bit that's bothering me is that the price of food, uh, which has gone up, exponentially yeah. thanks to the cost of energy and and also i think to some extent exploitation because mm. we're not seeing farmers incomes going up in the same way right. and obviously the challenge for government is to have food security mm. so that this country produces what those people rammed into the supermarkets want to eat yes and we need to make sure that we're delivering that and that's why I had breakfast with the Prime Minister this morning to talk about the way in which we're managing agriculture and, of course, the net result, which is how we feed our people. Yes. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is the way that farming has changed as well. I was listening to a, um, a sort of fruit farmer yesterday who was on uh, with Vanessa Feltz, and he was saying that it used to be that the fruit picking season would lasted about six weeks, but now it's sort of six months. So it's been expanded because I think almost like everything else in this world, we've turned everything into an industry. You know, it's no longer, a, you know, you can get your strawberries, you know, for three months of the year. Now you want to get them for 12 months of the year. And that's not always easy to do. That, that's true. Um, we've seen the number of seasonal agricultural workers uh, going up. The government's given more visas for those people to come to this country, pick fruit and go home again. And I think that that's a, a very sensible way. It's the equivalent to an American green card, that we could do a lot more for immigration because we could um, take the people that we need, employ them, pay them properly, and then let them go home afterwards. So we're doing the right thing in agriculture. We've seen huge technolo technological steps forward. We've seen farmers use 
their innovation, their abilities uh, to grow fruit for longer. The use of polytunnels, very prevalent in my constituency, gives us a longer growing period. Yes. But um, it's not just fruit that we're talking about here. If you look at uh, the dairy sector or, or beef, which is my personal uh, favorite, yeah. or indeed any of the uh, food sectors that we uh, need as people, then the prices have gone up hugely because of the cost of energy. Yeah. And whether it's red diesel or heating, uh, you know, farmers have got to pay those bills and we need to see their incomes reflected accordingly or we have to subsidize them. And the new environmental land management scheme, which is public money for public goods, is not yet fully fledged. And I think it needs to be more generous in some respects to make sure that farmers are not only adopting it, but providing us with that food security that is ultimately what we want to pay for. Yes. I mean, I've seen now five points or six points, actually, that Rishi Sunak has put to farmers who he met this morning. Putting agriculture up front in terms of trade deals, protecting sensitive sectors, prioritising new export opportunities, protecting UK food standards, upholding UK production standards, removing market access barriers. It's very, it's all very good, this, isn't it? It's a bit like... Russia's There's one missing there, though. There should on. be food labelling. Yes. For me, the biggest... What's a label is British. But not only that, but, you know, if you buy bacon that says it's from Brookfield Farm, yeah. your assumption is that Brookfield Farm is in the UK. It isn't. It's right. in Denmark. Right. You know, I think we need to be straight with people, particularly if we want to tackle the obesity crisis that costs the NHS so much. Right. So let's let's give people a fighting chance to protect their own health and support their own farmers by having honesty and labelling. And I did raise that with the Prime Minister's. Yeah. Well, I would certainly like to see a lot more honesty when it comes to supermarkets, because when I see signs like that on food, I always assume this farm doesn't actually exist. It's just an invention of the marketing department of this particular supermarket chain to make you feel like you're buying something organic when you're not. That's right. You know, that's absolutely right. You're very wise. When they call things, you know, like farm raised or they call things, you know, like um, barn raised or something like that doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just another way of describing something which isn't organic. Well, that's that's absolutely right. You're very wise to be sceptical. And uh, for me, the biggest uh, win for people's health is pasture-fed, mm. because that means you cannot add any grain that could be fed to people, any soya from, from the deforested areas of right. South America. You know, and, and yet pasture-fed at the moment just means for the last six months. Yeah. It needs to be 100% for that whole, whole life of the animal. And we, we need that honesty, that that assistance if you like yeah. you know we we educate the public and then we don't tell them what they're buying it, right. it's mad but don't we also know from what we've heard from the, some of some some of the leaders of the supermarkets that a awful lot of the manufacturing companies have just been you know sort of jacking up their prices and saying hope for the best people will pay it because i know that certainly tesco stopped talking to um i think it was heinz over some uh, price rise that they had done for their beans or their ketchup or something like that because the prices have gone literally mad and you kind of go well how is it can't be costing you four times as much as it used to cost you to produce this and bring it to market well fertilizer has gone from 200 to 700 pounds a ton so yes it, it has gone mad but then uh, that's why we have red diesel for farmers that's why we subsidize it because the the knock-on effects of price hikes in energy or in agricultural products hits the customer and particularly the poorest customers mm. in our society the hardest so you know the, the people on the lowest incomes are the ones that need nutritious food the most yeah and and they need to be able to get it and that's why i've always supported the um what the, the value lines that uh, supermarkets mm. have 
because we've got to look out for the people on the lowest incomes as well. Well, you have. Although a story in the Times this morning says that a fifth of all taxpayers will now be in the 40p tax ban. Um, and this Conservative government, I'm sorry to say, has, has now lauded it over the biggest tax increases uh, that we've ever seen in this country. Well, I'm, I'm no fan of tax increases or indeed of tax at all. <laughs> um, but, um, but yes, I mean, you know, I get emails from people saying we should tax people more, let's take an extra penny and all this sort of lefty nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And, yet, and then you look at that headline, seven, and I can't see it exactly, 7.8 million people dragged into the higher rate of tax. Mm. You know, we are taxing. And the truth of the matter is we need to be cutting tax to get that growth, to bring inflation down and to, to get our economy back on track. And uh, I know that the reason Jeremy Hunt is doing this is because he is, he is very keen to reduce debt, which is one of the five pledges Rishi made. But also because we, you know, we have high expectations for health spending, for pensions, for all the various things, the war in Ukraine, the cost of energy, all the things the government's been helping people with yeah. cost a lot. But ultimately, for me, if we cut tax, people will have to pay for those things themselves. Yeah, but I and, think a lot of people would I rather. I think so we'd would rather I. pay for things ourselves than have the government take money away and then make you feel grateful for the giving it back to you. Well, it's never worked for me, so I absolutely agree with you on that. <laughs> well, please do pass my felicitations on to the Prime Minister. Meanwhile, uh, over in um, the world headquarters of Woke, uh, Starmer Chameleon has now decided he can't get enough votes from British people, so he wants to import a few from the EU. Yeah. Eh? Madness. <laughs> well, it's not really. I mean, it's just a desperate attempt to, to get elected. And what we're seeing with the Labour Party is a real paucity of ideas. Mm. You know, by all means, go out and win people's vote. That's what David Cameron had to do when he hugged a husky. You know, you've got to reach out to people who wouldn't traditionally vote for you and, and invite them to support your ideas. Mm. And, and my feeling on the Labour Party at the moment is they don't actually really want to win because otherwise they'd be offering no. alternatives. But trying to get people from the EU to vote for them, well, it, it smacks of a desperation. Yeah. Well, Starmer hasn't found an idea he likes yet, because every, every idea he gets, he changes his mind on. So presumably he doesn't even like his own ideas. That must be very worrying if you're a socialist, because yeah. you know this is your great opportunity. The Conservatives have been in government for a long time. You know Everybody's grumbling about something. There's got to be a, a chance for the opposition to to really cut through, and and they're not. Mm. And you know, although the local elections were not a great success for the government, you know, in my constituency, we actually won six seats back, so we went up. Right. So you know, people aren't afraid to vote Conservative. What they want to see from the government is more conservative policies, like lower taxes, yeah. more growth, stopping the boats, and uh, reducing debt. Instead. Um, they're not being offered anything by the opposition. So I think the election is open and, and the, the run to success is available for whichever party tries the hardest to win your yeah. vote. No, I think you're absolutely right. It is by no means over and done with at all. Uh, Sir Bill, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Sir Bill Wigan, uh, Conservative MP there for North Herefordshire, talking about food, uh, why it needs to be better um, better sort of advertised really and better not necessarily regulated but but better communicated perhaps so that we are uh, in receipt of decent food for decent money in this country but i'd love to hear from you out there as to how much things have gone up and how ridiculously uh, expensive some things have become and yeah i mean if farmers are saying that they're squeezed because fertilizer prices have gone up and electricity prices have gone up i get that however you know i've yet to meet a poor farmer it's like meeting a poor doctor there aren't any it's as simple as that coming up we're going to talk potholes we're going to take your calls we're going to talk about britishness 
and we're going to prepare for Laura Dodsworth, who's coming up in the next hour. This is Talk TV. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And also, of course, for a pretty good dose of common sense. Alex Salmon, a former First Minister of Scotland, is going to join us in the next hour. Uh, in this hour, we've got Laura Dodsworth to talk to. Uh, she wants to talk about Suella Braverman and the whole Britishness conversation. We're also going to talk to Christian Nemitz about that, Head of Political Economy at the IEA. Also, uh, we want to talk about the strikers, uh, the state of play in our economy right now. Rishi Sunak is, of course, off to Iceland to try and get an idea from the uh, Council of Europe about what we're supposed to do about mass immigration all over Western Europe because that is a massive problem. And also, what are we going to do about the rising cost of food and the rising cost, of course, uh, of energy? Uh, Plus, we'll be talking about those woke rats that I mentioned to you at the top of the show. They're out there um, and they are huge, by the way. We're not talking that. We're talking that, I think, size. That sort of size. Imagine coming down in the morning uh, into your kitchen and finding a rat that size sniffing about. Bigger than you, bigger than your dog. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Heaven's sake. That's what they do. Who knows? Anyway, let's talk to Christian Nemitz, Head of Political Economy at the IEA. Christian, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good to be back. Good to be back. Good to have you here. Let's talk, first of all, about uh, the food business, because um, we were speaking to Sir Bill Wiggin earlier, and he's talking about getting some kind of a better understanding, perhaps, between farmers and supermarkets and the government and the, and the consumer as to how we not necessarily regulate the food industry, but how we kind of understand it better, because it does seem to be ratcheting out of control. I saw a tweet from somebody today who said a jar of coffee that used to cost five quid is now being charged at sort of £7.70. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? 
It is. To some extent, this is still a hangover from uh, the quantitative easing policy that we saw after the financial crisis, mm -hmm. and that was never properly wound down again. Uh, you had huge amounts of money printing, a lot of money entering circulation. Uh, didn't initially matter, but uh, further down the line it did. And uh, what you get in periods of high inflation is that uh, it confuses price signals. It yes. means as a consumer, when you see prices going up, you no longer know is this normal inflation still or is this somebody taking advantage of the situation and you're, you're getting uh, confused and it just uh, blunts and distorts price signals and this is one of the problems with yes that. and will it will the prices ever come back to sort of what we might i don't even know what normal is anymore but will they ever come back that's usually not how it works now it is a ratchet effect um, we get a permanently higher level and i guess the best we could hope for is that uh, in the foreseeable future, we'll go back to the kind of 2% inflation or so that we used to see right. uh, over the most of, of the last 20 years. Yes, which then brings us back to the strikers' uh, conversation about how they're all desperately asking for a double-digit increase on the basis that inflation is in double digits. Well, that's all very well, but certainly in the case of the nurses, they had 5% last year, uh, so they don't actually need another 10 do they? Well, and there's also, uh, with nursing pay, there's also the issue that there is automatic wage progression in the NHS. Right. Uh, so when, when they tell you wages haven't gone up since whenever the Middle Ages, um, that always <laughs> neglects the fact that uh, even if at a given position there may not be an increase, it's a bit like being on an escalator which goes up. Right. Uh, the, the position of the escalator may not change, but the position of anyone on it does. Yes, quite. And we see from the Times this morning, a fifth of all taxpayers will now be in the 40p tax ban. So they might want to be careful what they wish for, some of these people who are asking for higher wages, because they'll get. there's a point at which you pass the next into the next tax bracket and actually the pay rise is nullified. Yes, they may get their pay rise, but then they will uh, realise that the government is just uh, taking that money back again immediately. Um, yeah, this is uh, this tax ratchet effect, uh, stealth tax increases, is a, is a very dishonest way of uh, of raising taxes, of course, yeah. uh, especially if you compare this to the increase in national insurance contributions that we saw last year. Uh, that at least triggered a debate. That's a very transparent way of doing yes. it. You can be on your pay slip. Oh, this used to be 12%. It's now 13 or so. Uh, whereas with this uh, silent progression, uh, this is just a way of sneaking it in through the back door. Right. Which is what I think, to come back to the, uh, the original sort of circular argument about food, this is what I think is happening, because you can still buy, and lots of people are sending me tweets today uh, with pictures of vegetables that are still on sale for very cheap, small amounts of money. Um, and it seems to be many more of the sort of packaged goods that are more expensive, the kind of, the, 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 you know, instant coffee, um, the kind of ready meals, you know, that kind of thing, things in cans, things which are processed are going up more than actual, you know, what you might call fresh produce. And so, you know, you do wonder whether much of that is simply them just secretly putting prices up well yeah this does happen uh, as i mentioned in times of, of, of high inflation yeah. uh, you have an average inflation rate but of course a huge amount of variation around it uh, you may have an average a headline rate of 10 percent, but that means some of these prices can go up by 200 300 and so forth but you can of course still uh, also find good deals Oh, you can, absolutely, if, if you look. And also, every, as I will say, every time I go into a supermarket anywhere, and I don't just mean in London, it's always ran with people buying loads of stuff. You know, I'm slightly, you know, not convinced by the argument that nobody can afford to buy anything. Well, fortunately, we have a, a very competitive retail sector. Um, I remember about 
uh, a little over 10 years ago, there was this moral panic around Tesco that uh, their market power was growing and growing. Yes. And uh, then shortly afterwards, their market share began to drop because we had uh, new entrants, little and right. Aldi entering that market. And of course, uh, online retailing becoming a thing. And uh, no, retail is a very competitive sector. So even in times of high inflation, there is always going to be some decent offer yes. available. Because I remember there was a time, wasn't there, when they said every uh, out of every eight pounds, one pound is spent in Tesco's by everybody in the country or something like that. But the other thing that you can always rely on is the ineptitude uh, of some of these companies because they always run themselves into a bad place eventually. And I think in Tesco's case, they got rid of the guy who was good at running it and put somebody in charge who wasn't so good. I don't know what the exact reason was for the decline in the, in the Tesco market share, but it's just generally the case that uh, competitive markets are self-correcting. You can have a company that's market dominant for a brief period, but of course their competitors are not idiots. They right. realize, okay, they're doing something right. Uh, let's learn from them. And then um, you get somebody else running past them. Indeed. Taking them. And let's talk about the, the, the great subject uh, to hand at the moment, which is Sola Braverman, her speech yesterday um, about Britain's historic role in all sorts of things, including slavery, talking about political correctness, wondering why so many people feel that uh, standing up and saying that they're British is somehow a bad thing, blaming the white people of Britain for, for everything that's gone wrong in the world. And she says, you know, white, the white population doesn't exist in a special state of sin. I was asking Frank Ferreira this question earlier. I mean, how did we get here? First of all, I can't take that entirely seriously. Right. Uh, when somebody claims to be ashamed to be British, ashamed to be white, I think this is a kind of false self-deprecation. This will be the equivalent of when you're in a in a job interview and somebody says, uh, what are your main faults? And you say, oh, I'm such a perfectionist. Right. Um, and it's it's the kind of... Uh, Slightly it, disingenuous. It really, yes. Uh, what... what what they're really trying to do, uh, if, if somebody claims to be ashamed to be British or, or whatever, what they're really trying to do is uh, signal that they hold woke progressive beliefs. Yeah. And since uh, that in itself may sound a bit pretentious, if you if you would literally say, I'm one of the good people, yeah. I have enlightened beliefs and you don't, that would sound a bit arrogant. So one way to uh, to disguise that would be to frame it as if it were a self-incrimination, as if you were criticizing yourself. Yes. And that's why you're criticizing a group which you are technically part of but of course in that moment you don't consider yourself part right. of that group you're, right. you're really saying i'm so much better than everyone else in that group but this is the thing now that i find quite infuriating about our society that we, we appear to be and i don't know if it's just a london-centric thing it could be people are absolutely convinced that they should show you how good they are what a good person they are you know they're running in the marathon for charity or you know they cycle to work three days a week or uh, you know they buy um, you know fair trade coffee and they want to make sure you know that and they have to tell you that you know I don't know why people have become so intent on being liked it's just sort of almost like a, a, a character flaw it can have good aspects if it is through conventional charity then that can be a good thing if it at least raises money for good causes then fair enough and if somebody then also gets a bit of a status boost by showing off saying oh i'm doing good mm. things here i don't have a problem with that it's more when it's in the form of signaling uh, that you hold the correct political beliefs yes. and when that then turns into a purity spiral and people hold positions that are just self-evidently absurd yes but I think the two things are connected because the people that do either of those things tend to do both of them. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I give money. I give I, whenever I, if, if I give money to charity, which I do from time to time, I don't go around and announce it, and I don't tell people on here, "Oh, I've just given some money to charity because I'm such a good person." 
that's great. But if uh, for some people, uh, the ability to show off is an initial, uh, an, an additional incentive, uh, an additional inducement to do a bit more of it. I'm okay with that. Uh, where I really have a problem is uh, if somebody uses political beliefs as a status symbol right. and when it becomes really just about showing what sort of person you are rather than trying to make sense of the world and yes. coming up with policies that work, solutions that make sense. Yes. That, but that's then, when we have that, a problem. That then leads you down those roads where all Tories are evil, you know, the, the terrible plight, blight on, on, on society's right-wing thinking because if it wasn't for that, you know, we'd all be living happily ever after. Well, in my experience, it'd be quite the reverse. Yeah, that, this is when you get into those purity spirals. That's why you, you get... Uh, a lot of people pretending to be. We, we saw this in the uh, in the context of the the Gary Lineker argument yeah. about a month ago. Uh, people claiming uh, that we live on the verge of a fascist takeover, uh, saying this is literally like early nineteen thirties Germany. Right. When uh, I mean, nobody actually believes that. No. Uh, if they did, people would emigrate or or somehow right. uh, try to protect themselves. But th this is just this purity spiral. This is when uh, one person says. I think this is uh, this is bad, uh, and you have to one up them. You have to sort of to say, oh well, this isn't just bad. This is literally fascism. Yes. This is uh, literally 1930s Germany, and uh, you get into this spiral and and goes out of control. And people then convince themselves that they actually sort of believe that. Yes. Well, we had that guy turning up yesterday when Jacob Rees-Mogg was speaking, saying that he was going to explain fascism to everybody. I mean, it's pathetic. But Christian, listen, good to talk to you. Nice to see you. We'll have you back again soon. Christian Nemitz, head of political economy at the IEA, uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs, of course. Coming up, Laura Dodsworth is going to be here. Uh, we're going to be reading a few of the texts out that I've got. Uh, here we go from John in London. Mike, to say you are proud to be British is too close to saying you are proud to be white in the minds of the woke blob. Um, and one from um, another Mike who says, can you explain why the NHS pay for interpreters? If you live here, you should be able to speak English. If you need an interpreter, then pay for it yourself. Frank Ferrady speaks the truth. I think that's fair enough. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have sashayed, ladies and gentlemen, into the afternoon. It's five minutes past midday, uh, and that can only mean one thing. We're going to be doing the World of Woke at half past 12. I'm going to be telling you about something uh, that has got to us, and it's going to be, I have to say, in the form of a rodent. Because we've got woke rats nowadays, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not kidding you. The reason they're so big is because people are working from home. Uh, the reason they got so big was because they started visiting places they'd never been before during lockdown uh, because all the restaurants got shut down. So they moved away from the cities and they've now moved uh, into the burbs. So if you find a big rat in your kitchen one morning, which is bigger than your dog, you'll know where it came from. Uh, it came from your box of cornflakes uh, or your box of shreddies, which they're rather prone to, apparently. Uh, we'll be talking about that coming up a little bit later on. Also, we'll get a report, a special report in uh, on the latest from Prince Harry, uh, who's back in a courtroom, I think, today, uh, asking for uh, more protection, uh, even though he's got protection to go to the court to ask for protection that he says he doesn't have. Interesting. We shall see. Can anyone explain, says Janie, why a brand name of rice pudding is £1.99, while their own brand item is just 23 pence? I have checked the tin's contents and everything is the same, such as the weight, the rice percentage, milk content, etc. My mother, who is a really fussy eater, who usually notices if things are not the same, hasn't noticed either. I can only presume that the branded can is made from gold. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Um, and Lee says, uh, hi, two large potholes near us were repaired yesterday. Two more that were 10 feet away were not. 
I asked Leicester Council why. Um, also, Spencer adds, he says, I asked that same question to Redbridge Council. The answer was that they mark up holes which are 40 centimetres or more. Kenson's go and fill them in and leave others. Redbridge said they were looking at bringing it in-house to make the process cost-effective and efficient. Because, of course, it makes a great set deal of sense only to fill in big potholes, leave the smaller ones until they get bigger, and then fill them in. Huh? Deary me. It's time for some common sense, and there's only one man I can think of to talk to about that right now, and it is Alex Salmond, former First Minister of Scotland, leader of the ALBA party, of course. A bit of, um, shall we say, uh, excitement north of the border about a few stories that have broken. Uh, not least the SNP apparently being blamed for independence campaign's failings. Alex, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. I mean, I, I can have, I'm on the edge of my seat about these giant rodents yes well i don't think they've made it up north they're not keen on the cold weather up there but they're, de they're definitely down here um now apparently i'm sure i'm sure mike you'll be stalwart in your defense of prince harry as usual when you get onto that of story. course absolutely right well why wouldn't i be um ian domit not a name i know i must say is claimed that senior figures in the snp including nicholas sturgeon and peter murrell um have used funding and polling data to boost their own political agenda rather than the push for independence well I think you and I have discussed this before. Um, why is he only saying it now? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, looking back to the 2014 campaign, uh, I mean, there's two ways to look at it, obviously. You can say, well, it was a failure in the sense that Scotland didn't win independence. That's mm. fair enough. Or alternatively, you can say, well, actually, you know, it took the independence support from 27% to 45%. It allowed the SNP to sweep the Labour Party out of the dominant position in Scottish politics, which they'd occupied for 50 years, uh, and set Scotland fair for the for the future. I actually think that Ian Domit, uh, you know, played a valuable role in the campaign, but I'm always struck by the number of people now who, who say they were key strategists in the, in the Yes campaign of 2014, and they're all over the place in yeah. Scotland. Now, an interesting thing about that is that, of course, unless it was kind of regarded as something of a success, it, people wouldn't be trying to, you know, saying how important they were in it. Right. Now, I'm not don't look wrong. I mean, I'm not saying people didn't play important roles. Of course they did. But by and large, I think the balance would be that the Yes campaign of 2014 transformed Scotland, transformed it for the better, and and basically the last uh, you know 10 years of the eclipse of the Labour Party have been as a result of what happened during the Yes campaign. So yeah, sure, no doubt. Ian was fighting with Peter Murrell or, or whatever else was going on. But the, and the essence of the campaign, while it didn't succeed in its objective, nonetheless was transformational uh, in terms of the future of yes. Scotland. But which then takes you on, I suppose, to the next bit, which should have been equally transformational when Nicola Sturgeon took over from you as First Minister. She should have then moved that agenda further on, surely, uh, which she kind of failed to do because by the time she stepped down, it didn't appear that there were more people who wanted independence than there were in 2014. Well, that, that's, I mean, I, I read the Ian Domit's interview, uh, and he actually makes the point, you see, that back in 2012, when the Yes campaign started, you know, support for the SNP it was approaching 50%. So, And support for independence, as he put it, was at 27%. So it was quite natural in terms of the first stage of the campaign, which was to try and persuade people who were prepared to back the SNP if they would also please back independence as well. Now, I think that was largely successful, yeah. uh, and the S support started to, to move up very, very considerably. To me, 
this is where I disagree with you. The, the second stage of the campaign, to me, wasn't so much about converting the supporters of other political parties. I think almost more important than that, although there's a big section of Labour support who believed in independence, who've never forgiven the Labour Party for siding with the Tories and better together. But more important to me was to try and get the campaign out to the people who are disaffected from politics, who don't normally vote, who've given up hope. And a lot of that was done because, after all, the percentage poll went to 85%. Right. Not We didn't quite do it. We didn't get quite enough for the the, 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 the people who've given up on politics or politicians or, or parliaments, we didn't quite reach enough of these people. Uh, and to me, that was the, the key to the last part of the campaign. And it was perhaps just too late in terms of the embracing of the community campaign that flourished amazingly in the summer of 2014. Uh, and perhaps, you know, people who are used to party politics, uh, you know, were, were a bit slow to to grasp that opportunity. That's an important lesson, of course, for the future. Yeah. Was it not also true to say that in 2014 it was a kind of an idea, independence, whereas by the time you reached to sort of 2021, 20, it had to be more than that. It had to be spelt out. And I'm not sure that, that all the various white papers or, or documents that the SNP produced spelt it out sufficiently well for people to understand it and say, yeah, that all sounds good. Well, actually, one of the criticisms of the 2014 campaign that I've seen is, you know, we produced a 670-word know, white paper on every iota of independence. Yeah, but how many people they, do you think actually read that? Well, that's my point. That was one of the criticisms. <laughs> but the Brexit campaign, you know, painted a slogan on the side of a bus. Yes. But, you know, I, I suspect... Had the same effect. Happy... Yeah, well, I, I, I think there's, there's a happy medium between the two. Mm. You know, perhaps you can put forward a prospectus which is somewhat more detailed than the slogan on the side of a bus, eh, but perhaps slightly less detailed than the, than the every iota yeah. that we were keen to forward back in the, in 2014. But you live and learn. Yeah. Of course, the new situation, Mike, it's quite different. You know, as I say, back in the day, 2012, support for the SNP was huge, support for independence was more limited. We're in exactly the opposite position now. Yeah. Support for the SNP is, you know, somewhere in the 30s with the trials and tribulations that they're having just now. Whereas support for independence, the last post, 48 percent left. And you know, I, I know it, not you because you know a lot about Scotland, but you know, some of your colleagues down in London are, you know, sort of patting themselves in the back, having a guffaw, you know, laughing at the fact that they've seen off the troublesome Scots. You know, they should really pay attention to that 48 percent of people, you know, half the country who still believe in independence despite the difficulties that the SNP are having mm. at present. Which brings me to the usual question, which is that, you know, what a lot of people are saying is there needs to be a unification candidate, if you like, uh, somebody who can take the independence mantle rather than the SNP mantle and go forward with that. I mean, I ask you the same question whenever I get you on. I mean, are you are you any closer to, to sort of find, finding some method of doing that, whether it's you or whether it's somebody else? Well, I, I, I did propose at the Albert Conference, the Spring Conference on, on Saturday in Inverness, which was highly enjoyable. It was a bit pity you didn't manage to come yourself, Mike. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was, I was otherwise engaged, I'm afraid. <laughs> You'd have been so well received. Well, one <laughs> of these days well. I'll come. You know, I'll be back. Well, I'll, I'll hold you to that. Yeah. But the, the point as I was making is, look, maybe given this circumstance where yes, support's so high and, and, and SMP support's much lower, you know, it's time for the, the Yes movement to declare its own UDI from not just the SNP, but from all political parties. Yeah. Because there's all 
multifarious, yes, groups, you know, the think tanks, the activist group. When you last spoke to me in Glasgow Green, if I remember right, a week past Saturday, yeah. you know, when with that alternative small celebration you were having in London at the coronation, you know, there's 20,000 people rallying for independence in, in Glasgow Green. Now, what I, I think is there's a lot of activism, there's a lot of uh, effort, there's a lot of uh, the, the think tanks, the policy work going on, and perhaps if we can bring the Yes movement together, independent of any political party, and give it a life of its own, then there's two big advantages. One is the, that sense of unity, which you rightly point to. But the second, of course, is if you do that, then the case and the cause of independence, which is much bigger than any political party, whether it be SNP or Aleph or Greens or whoever, the cause of independence won't be affected by the, the difficulties that any political party suffers from. Indeed. A couple of great quotes from you uh, from, from Scotland this week, both from Nicola Sturgeon, a piece in the Herald this week, uh, where she says that she underestimated the polarisation of Scottish politics, which is hard to believe for somebody who was such a good operator as she was. But my favourite one uh, was when she said that the period since her leaving office, in her words, hasn't unfolded exactly as I anticipated. <laughs> well, that would mean that... Nicola Hiller too hasn't been a master of understatement, but nonetheless, that's a that, that's a uh, an interesting perspective. The the question of polarisation is is quite interesting because there's two aspects to polarisation. One is the subjects that you embrace to put forward as a government, and frankly, you know, if you're putting forward self-identification, who's the controversial subject? I mean, every time it's mentioned on on talk TV, I mean. You're moderate compared to, you know, Piers Morgan has apoplexy. Yes. <laughs> it's mentioned. That could be, <laughs> well, uh, he's not know, a happy a, bunny a, at a the moment, <laughs> given what's happening in North London at uh, uh, the Emirates Stadium. Yeah. Well, let's forgive him that. But they, but so the subjects, self-identification, you know, trial without jury, uh, the fishing uh, consultation at the present moment, which is you know, ridiculous, basically. The, 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 you know, saying to the fishing community, right, we will take 10% of Scotland and you're not allowed to do anything there anymore. I mean, these subjects would be controversial and difficult, even if you're putting them forward with a smile on your face. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and look, my advice to Hamza is to take that agenda and get rid of it, dump it, you know, clear the decks, because you can't win against London no. by dividing Scotland. No. You've got to unite Scotland against London. And the second thing, Mike, is, I mean, there are ways to take forward controversial subjects. I mean, you know, go back 10 years again, I mean, equal marriage. Now, equal marriage, which is generally accepted by every kind of sensible person now, is the right the right thing to have, equality for everyone. But back 10 years ago, when we introduced it, when I introduced it, it, it was quite a controversial yeah. subject. So, you know, basically, you, you try and go out your way when you're introducing a, a difficult, controversial subject where people have different views, you know, to consult people to the nth degree, to have endless meetings, to, you know, to listen to all the concerns quite properly, and then eventually, if you do it that way, sometimes you can take the, the, the debate into to calmer waters. Uh, now, you only do that, in my opinion, if it's something really worth doing. Yeah. And I thought that equal marriage was something that was really worth doing. I'm not at all certain that upsetting the fishing community, having every lawyer in Scotland going on strike to defend trial by jury or self-defense identification are sensible things to be embarking on. And my advice to Hamza clear these decks, for goodness sake, even if you put them forward with the, 
the broadest smile you could uh, you could imagine. It'll still be very difficult to devise mm. a vision. Yes, I suspect he's got some choppy waters ahead of him. Good to talk to you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Alex Salmon, former First Minister of Scotland, of course, leader of the Alba Party. He pronounces it a bit differently to me. I can't get my head around how he does that. Uh, coming up, though, are we going to be hearing about those rats? You know, the woke ones, the woke rats. They're all over the place and they're huge. They're coming for you. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham here with you until one o'clock. And then we'll be joined by Ian Collins just before that to tell us what's coming up on his show. Vanessa Peltz from four, uh, Jeremy Carr from seven, Piers Morgan from eight, uh, and then the talk from nine, which I think I'm on tonight. Uh, I'm delighted to say that we're joined uh, by... The Times investigation team's very own Dominic Kennedy. Dominic, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Nice to see um, you. Great piece on the front page this morning about ketamine because apparently ketamine is becoming more and more popular as a drug of choice for, for kids at university, which is largely due to its um, price, I think, compared to cocaine, right? Yeah, I and mean, certainly price is the reason why it's ketamine rather than another drug. Right. So you can get uh, a dose of ketamine for about £3 now, wow. which is about half the price of cocaine. Mm. They're quite different drugs. Yeah. But, um, and certainly, it's a deadly drug by the looks of it. Well, it is because what we've discovered um, with these figures that have been very kindly produced for us by the National Programme on Substance Abuse Deaths yeah. is that 41 students have died in England, Wales and Northern Ireland as a result of ketamine. And to give in you an idea sort of, of like timing, yeah. in 2012, absolutely no students right. died with ketamine in their system. Every year since then... Students have died with ketamine in their system, mm. and it's peaked at seven a year. But in the latest year, for which figures are being compiled, they project there'll be nine dead students. That's nine students coming back from university, not with a cap and gown, but in a coffin. That's awful, isn't it? Absolutely and it's basically terrible. a horse tranquilizer. So, is this ketamine that they're buying manufactured sort of in drug labs, as it were, or is it genuinely? stuff that's being made for horses to take and being sort of somehow rerouted. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be currently being rerouted from horses right. or A&E, which is thought places where that uh, you could officially have ketamine. Right. It comes into the country, it's actually posted in the mail, and the border force have increased their seizures fourfold wow. in one year of ketamine. Um, it's not quite clear where it's been come from, but it's, ob- it's obviously being manufactured yeah. somewhere and sent over here. Right, because, I mean, cocaine, they kind of know mostly the route that it comes from South America into either Israel or Amsterdam and then into Liverpool and that kind of thing, right? But with ketamine, posting it seems incredibly sort of easy. Yeah, it? well, it's it's very easy to I post I mean, in big it. amounts? Um, I don't think they're in very large amounts, but the, the border force actually do go through all of the international... Mail, mm. and they've been given, based on intelligence, um, special equipment to to detect ketamine. Right. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons for the massive increase, and that it's basically the law enforcement people are saying, look, this is causing a problem on the mm. streets. You've got to stop it coming into the country. Right. And your piece also talks about universities going a bit soft on drugs in general. What, what what's going on there? Yeah, there is. Now this is unrelated, but it's happening at the same time. There's a revolution going on on campus where the universities now are trying to move away from what's often called zero tolerance mm. of drugs towards harm reduction. Zero tolerance may include disciplinary sanctions, throwing people out of hall, yeah. throwing people off courses, that kind of thing. Right. Um, harm reduction may include things like having drug testing kits, drug checking kits, right 
at students' unions, which you can get for free or discounted. So if you get a white powder in front of you and you think it's cocaine, this will tell you, well, yeah, it is cocaine right. or ketamine. It's not soap powder. Right. So you can tell what sort of what sort of uh, substance you've got in front of you. Mm. Also, another harm reduction measure might be to advise students to take their drugs in groups with their friends around so that one of them can call 999 yeah. for a paramedic mm. if it all goes horribly wrong. And presumably ketamine is a drug that they take to go out with rather than to sit in a room on their own, do they? I don't know. Well, it's it's mainly a clubbing drug. Yeah. Um, but... You, you can get these tragedies because it's particularly dangerous if it's taken with alcohol. Right. So what can happen and has happened is that students will go out, get plastered, come back and then make the unwise decision to end the night off with some ketamine right. and um, that might end up with uh, death and has done. And what does it do to the body that, that basically causes the death? Is it, is it a sort of a, a heart problem? What does it do? Yeah, it slows down breathing and it also affects heart function. Right. Um, so that's that's going to kill you. I mean, it's another worry for parents, isn't it, really? I mean, as I speak as a parent of teenagers who will be soon going probably off to somewhere or other, whether it's university or whether it's just a job where they might be going out clubbing. And it's one of those horrific things as a parent that you, you can't really get away from. Yeah, and it, and it really is a young person's drug. Yeah. So um, you can see that in the figures show that 16 to 24-year-olds in the past 15 years the proportion of them taking ketamine has trebled. Um, but if you look at the death statistics, this is, this is so harrowing. Yeah. Most people who die from ketamine will never reach their 30th birthday. Wow. Um, and with all drugs, that the figure for uh, the sort of average figure would be 39 years old. Yeah. Ketamine is 29 years old, the average yeah. age that you die. So it doesn't sound like the universities are issuing any kind of massive warnings about ketamine or, or sort of clamping down on people having it or anything like that? Well, they possibly aren't aware of just how dangerous it is. Mm. It's, these figures are only out today. Right. Um, and ketamine has had a reputation of being relatively safe. Um, so it's, it's quite important that they take, up, they take notice of this. Yeah. yeah, because it presumably affects different people in different ways. Well... I'm not sure that it does, but people will say that about MDMA, yeah. that you can like get people who take MDMA. Is that still a thing, MDMA? It is, um, but people say, you know, even experts will say, I don't understand why so-and-so died and so-and-so yeah. didn't. Right. But with ketamine, you can die just from a dose of ketamine on its own, right. but you can also die, most people do, from mixing it with yeah. something else, and that has a bad effect on the body. Mm. It's a shocking story, but it's a great investigation, so well done to you guys again. Um, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank um, you, Mike. Dominic Kennedy there, investigations editor at The Times. A shocking story. I mean, if you're a parent, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that it is really like your worst nightmare that you get that phone call and somebody says, you know, your child is in a hospital or worse. This is Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to find out what's been going on with Holly and Phil this morning, uh, at this morning, because we don't know quite when it's all going to come to a crashing end, do we? Maybe it won't. Uh, also, we'll tell you about those giant rats, the woke rats, of course, the ones that you can find uh, in your house that are bigger than your dog. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. 
Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.